Welcome to Paradigmatic Silences. I'm your host, Michael Essien. If you like the content shared on Paradigmatic Silences, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you miss any of the previous episodes, feel free to explore Paradigmatic Silences archives. Today's episode brings in Dr. Macheo Payne for an interview. Dr. Macheo Payne is a professor at Cal State East Bay, and he teaches the foundational courses on race, gender, and inequality. And he is the CEO of Community and Youth Outreach, an organization seeking to reduce gun violence in the city of Oakland. Let's go inside the mind of Dr. Macheo Payne. Welcome to Paradigmatic Silences. I'm your host, Michael Essien. And today we have a special guest with us. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Macheo Payne and I am from Oakland, California. I am a professor at Cal State East Bay and I'm a social worker and educator for many, many years in Oakland. I grew up in Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco. I have graduated from UC Berkeley, Cal State East Bay, and San Francisco State. So when it comes to education in the Bay Area, I'm 100% Bay Area educated. Okay. And you said that you are a professor. What do you do specifically? I teach at Cal State East Bay many of their fundamental courses, foundational courses, race, gender, and inequality. I teach a policy course. And I also am the executive director at Community and Youth Outreach, which is a nonprofit in Oakland that seeks to reduce gun violence in Oakland. Okay. Uh, why this profession and why that focus? The profession, <laughs> the profession basically chose me through my family. Uh, I come from a family of educators, my mom, my dad uncles, aunts, many of them were educators. And I have a great uncle who, uh, and my grandfather all stressed education. So that is what definitely led me to the route of getting a college education. But once I became a young man, I got a job teaching at an after school program called the Freedom School Program. It was a summer and after school program during the year. And that program, exposed me to a great deal of leadership opportunities and training opportunities for educating black students in particular. And I became very passionate about the Freedom Schools movement. And that eventually led me to social work, getting a master's degree in social work because I was working at a school in East Oakland. It was an alternative school. And educationally, the children weren't being offered very much. Uh, the staff were all pretty much new and not seasoned at this alternative school. And that led me to look at some of the more systemic issues because you can't keep blaming the students for their individual behaviors when you start to realize how the actual institution is structured very poorly and doesn't have the resources to actually do what we say we're doing for these students, which was educating them. Mm. So when we have guests uh, come on this show, like many of them, like these are individuals that I admire their work, admire who they are as people. And so I'd like to get to this one question around core values. Can you share some of your core values to define who you are as a person, as an educator, as a leader? Absolutely. So my core values are rooted in learning and living according to your identity and your culture. So I believe that culture and identity in terms of your, not just your race, your gender, uh, your nationality, but your family culture, right? Like you said, your values, your upbringing. And so I come from a black family and we have a strong commitment to community service. And my family, my grandparents uh, 
engaged in community service and uh, spirituality and using using those as guides to raise your family and to be engaged in your community in a way that you're benefiting yourself and you're benefiting your community. And so I believe that education is, is for the betterment of individuals in a community, in a in an environment where uh, people can get along and live and explore and thrive. And that's what I believe education is for. And I believe that in the United States, the way it's structured is devoid of any true community for the purpose of people really being free. And, and with the United States being so complicated around education and slavery and racism and immigration, there's a lot of issues to navigate currently in the educational landscape. But I would say my core value is, is equal access for all and rooted in people's identities so that people cannot be asked to leave their identity, leave their culture, leave their community behind when they come into this educational setting. And that's basically what you experience when you're not in those dominant identities and you come into these educational environments is you are oftentimes being asked to leave behind who you really are. And who you really are is the central most important part of connecting yourself to who you are when you go into an educational environment so that what you're learning is not just the information, but you're learning about yourself and you're learning about how you learn and grow and fit into the world. Hmm. You, you're making me think back to my days um, when I formed a uh, knowledge group and we met and it was uh, rooted around uh, Egypt, Kemetic. Uh, we study a lot of things and it's like, know thyself, right? That is the point of education to get to know thyself so that you can become impactful and a mover and a shaker inside of your community. So I hear you talk about education and education as you uh, seem to describe it and something that I uh, ascribe to is a system of oppression, right? So, and you believe that it should be shifted to a system that allows you to be free. So we're going to lean into this work around uh, education. So if you could fix one thing in education, like what would it be? The word fix is the perfect word because reparations is actually what is needed in our educational setting today. Reparations is basic. It is about acknowledging harm that has been done in the past and moving forward to repair it. We have seen many uh, initiatives, uh, you know, testing resources, and none of them address the inequalities that are baked into the structure of our educational system and an acknowledgement that the educational system, of course, as many, many scholars have said before me, is operating exactly how it was designed. So we have to look at that design and say, this design of sorting people according to destiny and their destiny is determined by, oh, you're a boy or you're a girl or you, you're, you're, you're black or you're white, then, then this is the job that you're gonna be. So this is how we're gonna educate you. So this is the expectation that we're gonna have of you. And that is not what we say our educational system is. We say our educational system is for everyone. It is for uh, the betterment of our community and the betterment of our society. But until we repair that fundamental flaw in the American societal system of hierarchy and supremacy based on race, based on gender, based on socioeconomic class status, we will not see anything different than what we're seeing now. Okay. Reparations and repairing harm is the first step to really creating a space for black students in particular to 
have the harms that were committed against black students over the years, especially since Brown versus Board and desegregation. Uh, we have to move forward with the notion that we have to go back and fix the things that have been damaged in the past. And where we've seen that happen with other cultures and other situations is reparations, cash payments, resourcing schools and institutions that have black students and highlighting and focusing on black student achievement in particular. Currently in Oakland, there is a initiative to establish a fund for reparations for black students. And I support that. So when you say reparations, um, could you be more detailed? What would reparations look like for a black student? Is it to students? Is it to families? When you say reparations, could you be a little more detailed? Certainly. When I say reparations, I mean budget. I mean cash resources being offered, provided not only to individual students, schools, classrooms, but for the institution itself to look at data and focus specifically on black students and achievement and how are black students being impacted from a 360 degree lens, what is happening to black students in the school district. So there needs to be a fund set up to actually get that data because we're not actually collecting uh, data detailed data that's aggregated that isn't uh, that can be disaggregated to look at the specific impact on black students. So once we get actual data, we want to have a fund set up to then make the changes and not be satisfied that the money has been funded, but be satisfied when the outcomes are documented through the data. Many times we use the word data to actually decide not to do something. Data is used to further disenfranchise Black students by saying it's not going to work, it's never enough. But when the investment, the investment that is adequate enough to actually repair the harm has never been made, then it is a cyclical, sad, terrible joke to tell the black community, well, we already have this for you, or we already have that for you, but it's not working. Yeah, but we have these other people over here and these other people over here. And so it, it, it's also disingenuous to Latino populations, Asian populations, immigrant populations, English learner populations, when they get attention only to deflect from being held accountable to truly provide the actual reparations for black students in the form of institutional focus. And you bring the community in for the actual intervention to actually come up with the plan. What does that look like? How does the community engage? That's part of why institutions don't really roll out to the community level because the community is not involved at the onset. And so the community has been involved to actually create an initiative for reparations. And getting this idea through was a moment in time that has to be seized. But moving forward, we still have a long road to go in terms of uh, educators really recognizing that you cannot keep ignoring how black students in particular continue to be disenfranchised across the board. Okay, so this idea of reparations, um, I'm assuming this is uh, in yes, Oakland? Yes, this is the Oakland Unified School District uh, that is uh, considering a proposal for reparations for black students. And again, it's a $10 million fund that starts with gathering data, but then builds a process to support all the other efforts that currently exist, but there is no umbrella um, department or agency that can actually connect the dots and coordinate the work 
the money and the services in a way that we will actually see improved impact for black students in Oakland schools. So who is leading this um, charge for reparations? Oh, is it, a, is it a community organization? Is it somebody with inside of OUSD? Who is, who's the leader there of this? There are many, many, many community groups that have signed on. Uh, the, it is being organized and coordinated by a coalition for Oakland students. And that coalition has uh, many other coalitions underneath. The group that is leading this campaign is a coalition called Justice for Oakland Students. So the coalition is a ground uh, grassroots organization uh, made up of many individuals. And is Oakland Unified School District entertaining yes. this? The initiative has been forwarded to the board. It's actually uh, been proposed by three of the board members, the actual legislation for the school district. And it is being considered right now by the school board. And these reparations is the money. So I heard you mentioned $10 million. That was the figure. Is it coming from the district, uh, the community? Uh, who's leaning in to pay uh, or produce the $10 million? Oakland Unified School District is going to find the $10 million within their budget. When you throw out a number like $10 million for a district the size of Oakland Unified School District, it's not, it's not a small amount of money, but it is an amount of money that gets lost, that gets misused, that gets uh, redirected, misappropriated on a regular basis, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for not so good reasons. So this is an initiative that is going to be embedded within the institution and therefore the funds can be raised through grants or, or other uh, bond initiatives, but it's gonna come from the school district budget. So this is interesting. Um, is there a lot of traction around this? Is there a lot of media around this? Uh, I'm surprised that uh, I've not heard of it, but I can't say that I've been keeping up with all of the news. I've been dealing with my own stuff during the pandemic. Uh, is there a lot of publicity around this? I actually haven't heard a lot of publicity either, Michael. It's, it's funny because I am organizing at a... Uh, network level in terms of the contacts that I have that are also connected to this work. But no, as far as the news cycle or the social media cycle or anything like that, it has not really been out there in in a major way. Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> so maybe I can uh, get some coalition members to come on here and, and, and do some talking and do some Absolutely. publicity around this. Um, I, I would like yeah, to know yeah, how that happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she would. She would. She wouldn't stutter. She would go. <laughs> All right. Well, it's definitely. Well, in your um, commentary earlier, you were talking about data and how data is used to keep yeah. the status quo. And I want to revisit this notion of data and idea of data. So, if data is used to keep the status quo, but you mean to use data to make some changes. Who would sit over the interpretation of the data? And then how would they use that to make change in the system that's already using that data to keep individuals suppressed? So being a researcher, I learned that you can look at one number and have multiple interpretations of what that number is. So if you want to have a balanced budget, then the numbers are going to be interpreted in a way that you're trying to save money. But for African-American students, when we look at the data, for example, suspension data, I did my dissertation on disproportionate suspension of Black boys in schools. The data on suspension is not even comprehensive because teachers can send, uh, principals can send students home after lunch without uh, actually suspending them. There's 
quasi illegal practices, but we know it happens. Therefore, the data is not accurate. But when I was doing my dissertation, the most important data that I needed was referral data. How many times, how many students, and then getting demographic information. So when you look at data, it's a slight hand, uh, it's a sleight of hand to look at suspension data, for example, and determine, well, this is how these black students are getting suspended more than other people. But you could look at that same suspension data and ask one simple question. For each one of these suspensions, can we look at a chart of who are the referring teachers? When you don't have that data, you cannot look at, well, lo and behold, 70% of the referrals came from 20% of the teachers. And that's an example of looking at data and going downstream versus upstream. You look at the teacher's behavior, the teacher's race, the teacher's background, and that's going upstream with the data. You look at the student, he had a phone, he didn't take off his hat, he cussed, you're going downstream. And so when you're trying to solve educational problems by going downstream, you're blaming the victim in this case for disproportionate suspension. So data can be complicated, but it really is not complicated when you come in with a clear intention. We want black students to achieve and stay in school. So we want to find out why black students are being sent out more than other students, not why are black students continually unable to perform to the level where they can remain in the class, if that makes sense. So it's, it's not just the data, it's the conclusions sense. we draw. <laughs> Brother, so, uh, man, we should have, I don't know how long ago you got your uh, doctorate, but this describes the work that I did at the middle school, which I'm a principal, where uh, I can say that the system that we use for writing referrals, it's an online system. And that online system, if you're going to send the kid out, we have this requirement that you needed to enter the information into the system. And that system allowed us to disaggregate referral data based upon grade level, ethnicity, gender, teacher, time period, like in terms of it was period one or period two or within a particular part of the day. And the program itself, when we, uh, we could generate a report that would either give us that information in an Excel spreadsheet or in a PowerPoint we would know the, the top 10 referred students. We would know the top 10 referring teachers. We would know the instructional minutes lost. It was, it was amazing data because I think it describes something that, that you brought up, um, which for me, is a, it's a new concept. Uh, and I thank you for bringing up downstream versus upstream. So my question to you um, with this downstream versus upstream, is this something that is commonly uh, Reframe is this reframe commonly used within uh, the coalition or in conversations with Oakland Unified around the data? I don't know how, if how, how common it that particular term is used, but I do know that for a for for certain, the focus is the district and the budget. We 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 don't want to beat up teachers. The upstream concept is. If your student is having constant issues with getting to school on time, usually an educator says, well, let's check in with the parent because the parent is the person supposed to be responsible to make sure their kid gets to school on time. And when we turn around and look at the institution and we see students chronically having problems in this particular class, instead of looking at, well, let's look at the teacher, let's look at the subject let's look at the environment surrounding these students when they're having these behaviors that is upstream it comes from a behavioralist uh principle of uh there's different ways coming from a behavioral health standpoint as well 
we look at students' behaviors in these environments. And there's therapy as a social worker. I did therapy and we would do cognitive behavioral therapy. And the, the basic belief behind that is your thoughts determine your, your actions. And there's a school of thought called applied behavioral therapy, which says your environment determines your behavior. And so we have to realize that both are true. Your environment influences your thinking and your thinking determines your behavior. So going upstream says, let's look more at the environment, more so than the thoughts and the emotions that triggered the behaviors and the actions of the student. So when you go upstream, in this case, from a mental health standpoint, you're looking at what caused this student to not be happy in the first place. Well, there's violence in the community. Yeah, but they walked out of that and walked into your classroom. So now what? And so upstream says we have to, we can't, you can't have it both ways, educators. You can't say, you know what, these parents need to do this, that, and the other, um, and then turn around and, and absolve ourselves from the responsibility of being in charge of the students and their behaviors while they're in our class. So upstream can go up to the board, can go up to the, the foundation of the district, of the educational system. And when we go upstream, we go, we look at our bosses, we look at our boards, and that's not as easy. So I understand why we don't like to go upstream, but that's not even the biggest problem. The biggest problem with not going upstream with educators and groups of educators not going upstream is we don't necessarily have the answers. Because when you go upstream, that's a different answer. When you go downstream, that's easy. You send that kid home or you keep him here, right? You, you, you punish him or you lean in and you try to help him, right? It's not very complicated. But when you're trying to go upstream, oh, that takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort. And you're holding people accountable that may be really good educators, but they're in a position in an institution and they're not in a position to change that institution. And that's part of the problem. Mm, mm, mm. Brother, I don't think you understand. Like <laughs> you just opened up a whole new world for me uh, with this downstream, like I'm, in, I'm downstream data analysis versus upstream data analysis, because I do believe that we as school systems, we spend a lot of time with the downstream data analysis because it's for me, it's deficit thinking. It's like you described, you can you can blame the student, you can blame the parents, you can blame the community. This upstream data analysis opens up something completely different for me, right? It's not just the accountability, but it allows the system to begin to think about what the system is actually producing right. in a different way, right? And I think one of the biggest challenges that we have in education is we don't have a way to hold these nuanced conversations, but an, but an ability to do some upstream data analysis would allow us to get particular data that maybe we can change the types of conversations. So it makes me think, here's a question for you once again, um, like this upstream data analysis, like how do you build that out? Because I think this is gonna be the key leverage point around the reparations, around being able to get the information to the people in OUSD uh, board who can make some decisions. Well, Michael, it's, it, I don't even have it figured out. And what I do notice is that institutions are designed to not change. That's why we call them institutions because they're around for so long and they do something consistently over time. And what we're talking about is transforming all of the current systems that are still causing significant harm to our children. And that requires changing things that people have been really comfortable with for a really long time. And that means uh, looking at people's jobs and saying, well, is this the best use? Is, is this position the best position? So it really, it really requires reexamining the entire institution and how it's structured. And 
Ain't nobody got time for that, Michael. I mean, think about it. Who is who is thinking that way, right? So if you have who who has the time and the money to think of innovation? Okay, so Bill Gates said, well, you know what? We're just going to break the schools in into smaller schools, right? It seemed like a quick fix, but it was it was devastating to Oakland and and precipitated the closing of dozens of schools. Each and every school that was closed in Oakland over the last 15 years was majority black. In fact, all the schools that had the highest populations of black students were closed. And so when you look at that data point, and then you look upstream at the Oakland Unified School District, arguably one of the most progressive blackest districts in the country, and we can't approve $10 million for black students? So the problem is a problem. We have a problem of imagination. We have a problem of courage. And it takes this imagination combined with courage. We have to put our own livelihoods, our own jobs at stake to make this happen. You cannot have institutional change and job security at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Yes, indeed. So thinking about uh, going to lean back into this data point, because I think, man, you are you are bringing up some things that I think are very important for transformation and some of the things that are uh, going down for reparations in Oakland. You mentioned about data and interpretation of data, like you can have a single data point and that data point can be interpreted in multiple ways. So when you shared that information with me, the thing that popped into my head was mindset, like the mindsets of the individuals who are um, interpreting the data. Now, I know this wasn't part of our conversation or pre-work around uh, this, this podcast, but I just want to briefly mention, like, have you guys ever thought about, like, what types of mindsets are required to do this work, to lean in? Uh, so that data can be interpreted in a way that's going to be beneficial as we look at data so going one upstream. strategy I learned was to s- set out a list of what we believe. So if you take time, take an hour, take a weekend to really set the stage before you even look at the data and say, who are we as educators? What is our purpose here? What are what 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 does success look like? Oh, it looks like all of these kids graduating and going and fulfilling lives. What does failure look like? Right. Oh, okay. When kids get suspended when they don't achieve. Okay. Why does this failure happen? And then that's where you sit with your group of educators and come up with a list of what we believe. And when I was at Lincoln Mental Health, we came we we started with what we believe. We believe that all parents in their heart of hearts, love their children. You have to start with these beliefs because it's when you state, I believe black children can learn just as much as white children. When you actually state that black children do not misbehave any worse than other students, this is how you set the stage for looking at the data by making really obvious statements that actually get underneath our hidden biases that we begin to prepare ourselves to look at the data. That way, when we look at the data, we will ask certain questions. We won't ask silly questions like, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. We will ask targeted questions. Why is this group being suspended more than this group? Well, do they have different behaviors? Well, let's look at the behaviors. That is how you have an inquiry-led examination of data that's based on what we believe principles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. Man, I'm excited about this, man. This is, this is, this is interesting. Cool. So uh, I'm definitely going to put this on blast. Um, think about, well, yeah. well, let's, let's move a little forward then. Like let's assume something has actually happened, right? So um, say the district does approve $10 million for reparations. After they do that, what do you need the district to do 
after the money is approved. Because it's not just approval, there's going to have to be some other things. It's not like some people have to come into the buildings. There's going to have to be some collaboration. There's going to be some data collection, interpretation. What do you need the district to do after so, uh, approving the money? An institution like Oakland School District is incredibly important, but at the same time, can't really do a lot within a year, right? So think about this. If this gets approved, then you have $10 million this year and every year. It's basically the $10 million, this first initiative for reparations is simply a, a deposit. It's a, it's a reservation. It's not the meal. <laughs> you're, just, you're just calling it in and saying, hey, this is what we're going fo- to start to focus on. And when you understand how long it took for these institutions to form, you will, it will be obvious how the harms that we see in children today are the result of an accumulation of harms over decades. And so we would be foolish to think $10 million in one year is going to reverse that. So the $10 million might reveal, okay, we've done the study, we've done these, uh, what we believe, uh, upstream explorations, and we've determined that we actually need $100 million to even set up a system, right? So it's, it's like the channel locks in the Panama Canal. You don't know what your next step is until you complete the first step. You don't know what step three is if you're on step one. And that's also part of the problem is when you want to propose something bold that's, that, that, that folks haven't even spent a lot of time believing in, let alone thinking about, then, you, then people want it to fit exactly into this current old system that hasn't been working. They want you to have a plan, a three-year plan, a five-year plan, and how you're going to do it and who's going to do it. And it's totally disingenuous and ridiculous. And we don't turn around and do that on the upstream. That is a downstream strategy to ultimately set up barriers and hurdles uh, to institutional change. Yeah, yeah. Because I think the the downstream focus allows people to continue doing the same old, same old, the status quo, right? Um, But when you do upstream, you're opening up different ways of communication and different ways of looking at patterns of behavior. So I, I love it. So it's like, it's even about embracing non-closure, right. right? That this is just the beginning of a conversation that we're going to talk about innovation and thinking about how we do stuff here in Silicon Valley anyway. Uh, we're just being innovative. We don't know what the outcome is going to be, but we do know that we need to innovate, right? And so we'll see where this ride goes. Well, I also have a set question connected to, we're talking about the district. Um, say if this was to pass, uh, what do you need the community to do we after need the, the money is approved? To show up and engage in the process and know that it's not going to be clean. It's going to be a little messy, uh, but it's for our children. And it is going to be more difficult uh, because it's going to require the community and educators and, and community leaders to all be held accountable, right? It's not just, oh, the community is needs help and 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 the leaders are bad or the leaders are saying oh we don't have enough resources because the community is suffering and right and everybody's pointing the finger within the same community and so the whole idea of reparations is also acknowledging so that people can breathe a sigh of relief understanding that for black people to recognize and acknowledge that harm has been done first and foremost is the most important point of this initiative is for Oakland Unified School District to recognize and clearly state harm has been done to this group right here. It doesn't mean harm has not been done to other groups, but this group right here has been specifically and comprehensively targeted and disenfranchised over generations in the same community. And that is the very, very first step. The United Mm -hmm. States offered an apology for slavery, right? These are the very first steps. By acknowledging, yes, this happened. Yes, we did this, and it was wrong. 
and it was deliberately wrong and harmful and it was and, and we're acknowledging it and and we're going to and we're going to move forward to fix it with resources and the key point michael is adequate resources to fully repair the harm and as you know 10 million that that's not going to be enough <laughs> to fully repair the harm for one school so we know it's going to take a lot more money we know it's going to take a lot more time Well, man, I'm really excited about this. Uh, and I do know that Oakland has been uh, innovative when it comes to things. I remember when uh, Dr. Tony Smith was a superintendent and he identified uh, there were some issues with males, black male students in uh, OUSD. And he worked with 100 black men to look at data and come up with something. And so they actually produced the African-American Male Achievement uh, Program. Are you guys, are they part so of this the conversation? the African-American Male Achievement Office was a great institutional gain for Oakland Unified. And it turned into, it, it eventually turned into a equity office, office of equity. So they are still within the district, but not directly, actively engaged and involved in this particular um, initiative. Okay. Yeah. All right, I was just a little, little curious. Um, okay, thank you about that. Okay, and so as we think about moving forward um, with these reparations, uh, I'm going to be looking out to see uh, the media blast on this, and we can get Cam in here. Um, knowing what you know now, right, what advice would you give to parents at this particular moment as we think about all the things that are happening with reparations? What would you say to parents? Uh, who I think are very important. Piece I would say to parents to this movement. There's nothing wrong with your child. <laughs> there's something wrong with the system, and that supporting your child is going to involve advocating and engaging into this system even more. And so, twofold: recognizing and understanding that our children simply need. It's not what our children need. It's what needs to get out of their way. And when children are being educated, we got to get out of our way to get out of our kids' way. And teachers got to get out of their way so that they can learn and be inspired and, and, and think their own thoughts and be, be aware of their own self and their own emotions. And that is true education. And it's antithetical to control and, and what, what, what makes us feel more comfortable and makes us feel quote unquote safer. But I would say to parents, now more than ever, you gotta fight more for your children. And the good news is that now more than ever, there are efforts to support you. So get involved with the Coalition for Justice, the, the Justice for Oakland Students Coalition. Get involved with the Justice for Oakland Students Coalition and get involved with your child's teacher and principal and school. And let's go. Yeah, on, on the rail, on the rail. Uh, and I'm fine. So thinking about um, as, a, as a site leader, uh, somebody who's been in education for quite some time, thinking about this system of oppression, like communities are oppressed and schools are just a microcosm of that oppression, uh, we're social reproductive factories. So one of the things that we do know for a fact is that there has been like a disenfranchisement of our communities. And what you're talking about, I'm hearing, uh, there's a lot of agency, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of self-determination. How do we assist people who have been disenfranchised? How do we assist them in, in becoming uh, agents of change actually, or engaging in agency, advocating for their children, advocating for their communities. I would, I would encourage families and, and, and parents through a two-pronged strategy, encouragement and a warning. If yeah, it, calling, you know, taking that extra step is, is extra time and we don't always have extra time, but it shows the educators, it shows the community that you are engaged and that you do care. 
The flip side is when we revert back to our to our homes and we don't get engaged and we don't get involved and we don't reach out, then what's being said about the harm that's been done to your family or your child is that it was your fault. Because when you're not there to represent what actually happened by engaging with your educational system, with your board, with your principal, then the things that are happening to you and your child are being blamed on you. Are you familiar with what has transpired or has transpired in Compton Unified School District around trauma? Hmm. Um, so just brief, because I'm, I'm thinking in terms of as we're holding this conversation, uh, thinking about how the school is responding to the community. What and Compton Unified children uh, thinking about how Compton you're exposed to some things that you shouldn't be exposed to as children. Uh, out in the community, like in your day-to-day living, right? And there's trauma involved. And kids seeing things or having things done to them that is not age appropriate, that is just not appropriate for humans to see in, in, in any situation. That trauma, they then show up to school and that trauma plays out and manifests in different ways inside of schools. We see it in, in Oakland and San Francisco and in fact, schools across the nation, you see this trauma play out. Um, teacher might ask you to do something and the kid blows up and you, right. you're perplexed. It was just like a simple request. But what happened is Compton Unified, there was a high number of suspensions and referrals for kids who were coming from these communities. And then the community filed a lawsuit against Compton Unified. And that community consisted of, there were uh, teachers and parents that filed a lawsuit saying that Compton Unified was, was punishing kids who are coming from a community where they were traumatized and being punished for having that trauma. And Compton lost the lawsuit. Um, and so schools, they view schools as being accountable to responding to the issues and the needs of children. They tried to have the lawsuit equate the trauma to being something like having a, a, mm. an individual education plan but it didn't quite go that far. So thinking about, well, that shifts a school altogether, that a school now is responsible for addressing the community needs that are brought into the classroom. And it makes me think about your reparations. Like this seems to be this the right. same way, but it's, it's, it's packaged different, where you're saying that the school is responsible for addressing the needs of, the, of their constituency, in particular yes. uh, Black kids. And, 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 that, and that it needs to be institutionally held. It needs to be institutionally held and institutionally integrated as well. Um, You know, I I don't even want to bring up charters, but again, it's 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 not the frame that is going to lead to the. um, The goals that we're, we're, we're getting to in terms of this or that we need every educational environment that. That, that seeks to, to educate and, and not cause harm to students to flourish and thrive. And we need all of those environments to focus specifically on how they handle black students. Yeah. And so it makes me think like in your reparations in the conversations that you're holding, um, how are you guys defining community? And when I say, how are you defining community? Is your definition of community expansive enough to include the teachers who teach those kids as being part of that community or are, or is the school district and the people who work in the school district seeing something that's as a, something that's outside a great that question because the community I'm a parent, <laughs> right? I'm a OUSD parent. I'm a charter school parent in Oakland and I'm involved. So absolutely. The organizers have, children in the school so most of us are either parents slash educators and we call in the educators uh so yes the community involves every level in terms of residents property owners and um children uh it is a place-based concept of of community in terms of oakland but then it's inclusive of the different neighborhoods 
and cross sections of socioeconomic status because we're not trying to ignore uh, other people's needs. We're trying to integrate the community's needs so that the least of us can 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 be taken care of. Most definitely, most definitely. And and the reason I pose this question is uh, I'm a huge believer in community schools. And uh, I do believe that if we expand the definition of community schools, then uh, to include others and in, that the school itself is part of the community. I think one of the biggest challenges more times than not is the school is seen as a separate institution. Like it's this thing sitting over here and you send your kids to us and we're going to do some things to your kids. But if you redefine it, it's like, no, the school, you're part of the community. And this is what we need you to do to respond to the needs that have been identified by the community. I think it, it reframes that. And I think this is where you, um, you guys are headed in a, in a different direction because although Oakland does have community schooling, um, it has not been able to address the challenges that are found inside the communities right. with, with the students who attend OUSD. Yeah. Well, um, there are implications for this, but I, 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 I do believe that <laughs> for a while, um, man, yeah. I could hold a conversation with you on this for quite some time because I'm even, I'm even starting to think about teacher professional development. I'll start thinking about board uh, professional development around uh, being able to interpret data, upstream data, and what that might look like, having some protocols set up. Um, so maybe we need to hold a conversation, conversation offline, and I would love yeah, to, cool. to meet Kim because I, I got some ideas. So. Um, but I do want to transition us to um, the questions that's going to uh, lead to closing out this uh, important conversation, my good brother. And these are the questions that I pose to people who come on to paradigmatic silences. And so uh, this is going to be less. I'm just going to give you these questions. I just want you to share your opinions and we're going to move on to the next question. Right. So the first one. Uh, well, I might have a few follow-up questions depending upon what you say, but here we go. Um, have you ever experienced paradigmatic silences? Yes. yes, I have experienced paradigmatic silences. Can you share an example I was a of student, your experience? And I took a class, well, many, many classes that I took as a student, I was a quiet kid. And uh, I would be in a class with, a, with, a, with some rowdy kids. And so I didn't have to learn as long as I didn't act out. This is how I'm interpreting it 20, 30 years later as an adult. But basically, as a black kid, I slipped through the cracks because I wasn't getting sent out of class, but I wasn't doing any work. And I wasn't turning in any homework. And I was getting passed. So reflecting on that, when I became an educator, I realized how not only kids who uh, are traumatized and act out in class get disenfranchised by being excluded and punished, but how students who are not reacting externally to trauma uh, can also be not educated. And so it also reveals that when you stay focused on behavior, you're never going to get to the fact that, well, this teacher's not teaching this student that's quiet over here, right? And 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 it, and, it, and it keeps again going downstream, keeps us from going upstream and saying, well, this teacher just isn't really that good at teaching students on a broad spectrum of learning uh, styles. Absolutely, man. You're speaking my language, speaking my language. Um, I said, well, because for me, um, discipline, uh, I, I hold these workshops on uh, anti-racist discipline, but what it really is, is building the mindsets of teachers to build relationships so that they can instruct kids, right? Because in the end, it's about instruction, right? It's not about all this other stuff. Um, all right. uh, is school segregation Woo! good or bad? I think it can be good in certain contexts, but overall, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad when- Can you say a little more about bad? Special ed as a tool to remove kids, but 
keep them within the educational system, but remove them from mainstream. Tracking is bad. So segregation within the school, according to educational ability or uh, special classification, I believe is bad and, and further disenfranchises students. Um, segregation would only be good if it was specifically for a girls, a, a girls school, right? Um, that specifically focuses on aspects that uh, they want to nurture and foster and protect with young girls in middle school, etc. But typically when we see segregation, it is de facto uh, in terms of what students can go to what schools. I literally experienced a situation where I was uh, had had a relative staying with me, a uh, uh, a young uh, cousin. She was light skinned, and the enrollment office immediately tried to enroll her at Skyline, <laughs> as opposed to the to the uh, Flatland School that was near where I lived. And so it it happens on so many levels. This idea of segregation based on where people belong, quote unquote. And for those people who might hear this podcast, uh, Skyline High and Oakland Unified School District is a school that sits uh, high in the hills on, among million dollar properties. Uh, next question. Can districts make rapid changes to benefit yes. students that have been historically underserved? Districts can fundamentally change the board composition. They could change the leadership structure. They could change uh, all of these things. Uh, it is it is definitely possible. Will they or what would it take? That's a different question. Right, next question. What supports do teachers need to improve teachers outcomes need for students? Adequate training and Teachers need an institution that really supports their learning as teachers as an ongoing process. And teachers need a decent salary. Right. I'm gonna give you a qualifier around this because I posed this question to people who show up on the podcast. Um, when I pose a question around uh, racism or racist, uh, I'm not speaking around the individual racism, whether a guy said the N-word or a lady said the M-word or something pejorative. Uh, when I think in terms of racism and racist, I think in terms of institutional and structural racism. So I'm about to pose the question to you. Can yes. a racist district become anti-racist? It seeks to decolonize itself altogether. To eliminate racism, we would have to eliminate the very structure of colonial education, which is what we're currently doing. Do white parents have a role in yes. improving white education? Yes, improve education by being mindful and aware that black students need more and also that their support of an advocacy of that is unfortunately more powerful than sometimes more powerful than the advocacy of the families and students that need the support. Okay. Last question. Do you see black and brown voices being incorporated into the conversation yes, I see black on and brown education? Voices being incorporated into the conversation of education, but I'm no longer just interested in seeing black and brown voices. I wanna see black and brown voices uh, that, uh, I, I wanna see what those black and brown voices are saying and doing. And I don't think we have enough black and brown voices saying and doing <laughs> the things that will have durable change in, in the structure of education today. Yeah, brother, you're going to end this podcast with, once again, bringing up mindsets, brother, mindsets. Yeah, it's just not whether you're black and brown, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's the mindset. It's the thoughts behind uh, the work that you're doing. Is it equity-based, social justice, lens, et cetera? So uh, Paradigmatic Sciences would like to thank Dr. Mateo Payne for stopping by to share his thoughts 
around education and the work that he is doing in the city of Oakland and around the Bay Area. So, uh, Dr. Michelle Payne, if people want to get in contact with you, uh, how could they reach out and stay in contact with you or find out the work that you're doing? At Community and Youth Outreach in Oakland. So you can find me there. I also am, my email is M-A-C-H-E-O-P at gmail.com. Okay. Dr. Michelle Payne, Paradigmatic Silences, would like to thank you, one, for the amazing work that you do, have done, and will continue to do. Um, and we appreciate you, brother, you. for your equity and social justice lens here in the Bay Area. Thank you. Paradigmatic Silences would like to thank Dr. Michelle Payne for all the work that he is doing to make the world a better place for you and me. If you would like more information on Paradigmatic Silences, visit Inside the Mind of a Principal and read my blog on The Opportunity Gap and Paradigmatic Silences. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Michael C. Essien. There are a series of workshops being offered in the month of March. A course on critical race theory, a tool of analysis of race and racism in education, continues. The second class in a five-part series will be held on March 9th. Participants will explore the second tenet of critical race theory, the permanence of racism. And on March 13th, a workshop will be offered, part one of Anti-Racist Discipline, You Are the One Students Have Been Waiting For. This workshop explores the use of critical race theory as a framework to help parents and educators innovate for equity. You can visit SEN Education Group to register for these workshops. Paradigmatic Silences is sponsored by SN Education Group. Until next time, this is Michael SN saying, may equity and social justice empower us to speak and act.